From the in-town Jewish Academy in Atlanta, Georgia, I am Rabbi Ari Solish, and this is Knowledge on the Deeper Side. In this podcast, we discuss the most inspiring and stimulating Jewish ideas, ideas that challenge the way you think and feel. To sponsor a class or episode, please visit intownjewishacademy.org slash sponsor. And now, on to the episode. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Daily Power Parsha, otherwise known as DPP. Today is Tuesday, July 5th, 2022. So this is after a long weekend, some Independence Day uh, festivities, and now we are going to study Torah, which is the, the key and the secret to true independence and personal freedom. So, let's jump in. Torah portion this week is Chukas, or Chukat. And there's a lot of fascinating narratives, mitzvot, commandments to discuss. The opening of the Torah portion famously talks about the mitzvah of the Para Aduma, the red heifer. And so without further ado, let's jump in. Since today is Tuesday, we still we have some ground to cover right here at the beginning of, of the week. Sorry, the beginning of our week, which is a few a day late, but let's uh, let's jump in. Okay, Torah reading for Chukat, reading one, Numbers chapter nineteen, verse number one. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying. So first off the bat, we have a, a commandment from God to both Moses and Aaron. As you know, most of the time, it's Moshe God spoke to Moses, saying. Here we have the additional Aaron. Usually, that's done. When the commandment involves the Kohanim, the priests. Usually that's when you get an Aaron shout out. All right, let's continue. Verse 2. This is the statute of the Torah which the Lord commanded. Now, the statute of the Torah is pretty um, unequivocal. That's like very definite, very definitive. It's like, this is the statute of the Torah. Now, you know, you and I might wonder, hey, there's two, 613 statutes, 613 mitzvot. What, what is the statute of the Torah? All right, well, hold, hold that thought, hold that question. Let's keep on reading. So this is the statute of the Torah, which the Lord commanded, saying, speak to the children of Israel and have them take for you a perfectly red, unblemished cow. Para aduma temima. Not to be confused with the high school, Tamima. Para Aduma Tamima. Tamima means perfect. Perfect. Para adu, para means cow. Just going through the Hebrew. Para means cow. Aduma means red. Tamima means perfect or complete. So put all three words together and you get a perfectly red cow. Oh, one second. Tamima could mean perfect, perfectly red. It could also mean Oh, no, 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 yeah, yeah, sorry. Para dumatimimah, perfectly red. And then the Torah says, asher im bamum, that has no blemish, right? So that's the perfectly red, unblemished cow. Which no yoke was laid, so it can't have been worked in the field. Or it can't have, it cannot have previously worked in the field, if that is correct English. I'm still not sure. Sounds a little awkward coming out of my mouth. But anyway, this red heifer has to be perfectly red, which, as our sages say, means that there can't even be two black hairs. If you search the, if you comb the animal, so to speak, literally and figuratively, 
you cannot find more than two hairs, or two already disqualifies it. It has to be perfectly red, it has to be unblemished, and it can't have previously been worked in the field, or have worked, yeah, worked in the field. And you shall give it, this perfectly red unblemished cow, to a Lazar the Kohen. And he shall take it outside the camp and slaughter it in his presence. Okay? So it's taken outside the camp. Which, by the way, is unusual. As you know, sacrifices are typically brought in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle, right? In the courtyard area, right outside the tent of meeting. That's where they would that's where the altar was. That's where they slaughtered the sacrifices. Well, this is not a sacrifice. This is another mitzvah. And this is done, this is slaughtered outside the camp, outside the camp. Now, let's continue with the ritual. And, and I should mention, right, you know, I, I, before I go any further, let me mention this. Thus far in the Torah's narrative, in this week's Torah portion, we don't even know why we're doing this. We're just like jumping in kind of midstream, like take this cow and this is what you do with it and the red heifer. It's... Why? We're going to get to the why later. I'll share it with you right now. And I'm sure, as we all know, the red heifer was utilized to purify individuals who have become, who have come in contact with death, with a dead body, with a dead human corpse. Someone who comes in contact with a dead human corpse is considered to be on the most extreme or most severe level of impurity, of ritual impurity. It's not a physical thing, it's a spiritual thing. That level of impurity renders one unfit to, to go to the temple, the temple mount, and stand in certain places, eat certain things, etc. Therefore, it was incumbent upon that person to purify themselves. How? Through this ritual. Again, this, the why, will be clarified at the end. So far, we're getting the what. The what of the ritual. Start off with a perfectly red unblemished cow. Give it to Elazar, the Kohen. Take it outside the camp. Slaughter it. Elazar the Kohen, let's continue verse 4. Elazar the Kohen shall take from its blood with his finger and sprinkle it toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. So he dips his finger and he sprinkles it seven times toward the front of the tent of meeting. That's the building. The cow shall then be burned in his presence. Its hide, its flesh, its blood, with its dung, he shall burn it. So the animal is burned. The Kohen shall take a piece of cedar wood, hyssop, and crimson wool, and cast them into the burning of the cow. Cedar wood, hyssop, and crimson wool. The Kohen shall wash his garments and bathe his flesh in water. In other words, he has to go to mikvah, and his clothes have to be cleansed as well. And then he may enter the camp. And the Kohen shall be unclean until evening. He has to go to the mikvah and he has to wait till evening and then he is once again purified. Now again, just to clarify, this is the Kohen who is involved in the preparation of the animal. This is not the person who needs it. The person who needs it needs to get the sprinkling of the red heifer. This is the person, the Kohen, who prepares the red heifer. Ironically, the guy who prepares the purification potion becomes impure. Now, not to the level that he needs a red heifer. That would be a, an unending loop. He needs a mikvah. It's fine. But he is rendered impure. I'm going to speak about the significance of that soon. Now, the one who slaughters it becomes impure. The one who burns it 
right? Remember, there was shechting the animal, slaughtering the animal, and then burning the animal. The one who burns it, the same deal, shall wash his clothes in water and cleanse his body in water, goes to mikvah, and he shall be unclean until evening, he has to wait until nightfall. Okay, so, so far we've done two things. Let me just clarify. I, 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 know it's, I know it's clear. I just, I would feel better if I could just articulate it one more time. So, the reason for this process, which the Torah has not yet mentioned, is because somebody has some, let's call him Ruvain, has come in contact with a dead body. Either he touched a corpse, he helped bury a corpse, he stood in a cem- um, cemetery, would render one direct, I don't know, okay, maybe above this, above a grave, or he was in a in a room or in a um, in a building where there was a corpse. He becomes in the level he becomes ritually impure. This this Ruvain uh, come in contact with death. He now needs a red heifer red heifer mixture potion to become cleansed. Sarah. Yeah, I've always wondered if there were implications. You know, today. Like if it affected our connection with Hashem or something, if we were to come through, there's that question. And then I have one more. And then the, um, and then he becomes ritually impure also. It's like a never ending loop of impurity. Right. Okay, good. Excellent questions. So question number one is today, excellent question. This, the red, the red heifer was mainly in order to step into the temple or temple mount area. And then, and then, I mean, Michigan, whatever, into that holy area as well as partake of the ritual sacrificial meat, which, by the way, even a non-Kohen could. For example, if you brought a carbon shlamim, a peace offering, uh, one of the reasons why it's called peace is because everyone gets a part of that offering. Some is burnt on the altar, some the Kohen eats, and some the one who brought it eats. Well, if you're ritually impure, you can't bring an offering and then eat from it. It's just not you're ritually impure. You can't even stand there. You can't even go to the, that, that area of the, of the Mishkan or the temple. So... Today, it's really, um, it doesn't have any practical implications because we don't have a temple and there are very few things that we, I mean, I don't know really of anything that has to be done in a state of ritual purity. Um, there is, of course, the laws of family purity, mikvah, um, which, which again, that's for like, you know, relationships and intimacy. That's one thing. Um, the only other thing we have is vis-a-vis a kohen. A Kohen, even today, is um, enjoined, uh, encouraged to be as pure as possible with the understanding that everybody is ritually impure because at some point everyone came in contact with death. A Kohen, even till this day, is careful about not intentionally coming into contact with death. Even though there's no way out of it because there's no red heifer, you can't do a red heifer without a temple because... You got to sprinkle it toward the tent of meeting. We don't uh, the, the 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 holies the holy of holies. We don't have that, so we can't we can't do the red heifer today. Um, but a kohen is still um, it's more than encouraged. A kohen is really charged with not becoming ritually impure on that level of 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 death. But again, on a practical level, no, there's no red heifer today, and the fact that there's no red heifer, so so then what is? Are, are we stuck? The answer is yeah. We are stuck. But the good news is, I don't know, it's not, not the good news. It's all part of the not good news. But we don't have a temple, which means that that becomes less critical um, of a thing to be purified for. So I hope that makes sense. And there's the same, te- the same lack of temple that can't, that, uh, that, that, that doesn't na- enable us to do the red heifer uh, ritual, also doesn't necessitate 
um, the red heifer ritual to go visit it. So that's one thing. Um, but by the way, this would have practical implications regarding the Temple Mount area. According to Halacha, the Temple Mount is still in a state of, of holiness. The, uh, it says, the, the, the holiness has, has never departed from that place, which means that to actually walk on the Temple Mount, one really should be in a state of ritual purity, which would require a red heifer, which can't be done, which is why many, many, many people will not step onto the Temple Mount in a tour. Now, Western Wall is fine because the Western Wall actually was not the wall of the Temple. It was the wall of Jerusalem, one of the retaining walls. So you can, standing outside the, the Western Wall is fine because one is not in the official area of the Temple Mount. Um, at least the way it was sanctified back in the day. I hope that clarifies. And your second question, wait, what was it? Second question? Oh, the, 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 the loop, right? The, like, you know, we take a picture by a mirror and you see like a thousand mirrors and it's like, ah, going crazy. So here's the thing. The individual that needs the red heifer um, is this, the most severe level of impurity. The ones who prepare, the Kohanim who prepare the red heifer potion or mixture, so they become impure only on the level of needing to go to mikvah, but they, they don't need a red heifer. If they needed the red heifer, then that would be never ending because, you know, person A needs a red heifer, so person B helps prepare it, but then they need a red heifer, so person C does it, but then he needs a red heifer, and then that would keep on going. In this case, it's different. Person A needs a red heifer, so person B prepares it. Person B needs a mikvah, and this guy gets the red heifer, and then the story is done, right? So person B, the coin who prepares it, just needs to go to the mikvah, and that, and that his file is it's closed out. This guy's closed out. Everyone's pure. But again, there is a spiritual, there's a powerful spiritual idea that I'm going to share um, uh, before the end of today's session on, on, on this topic. Now, the, who becomes impure? Number one, the Kohen who slaughters the animal, the red heifer, and the one who burns it also becomes impure needing a mikvah. Let's continue. A ritually clean person shall gather the cow's ashes. Remember, what we've done is we've taken the red heifer, slaughtered it, sprinkled some of the some of the blood, burnt it along with cedar wood, hyssop, and crimson wool. Now, a third a third person. We had one person slaughtered, one person burned. Now, a ritually clean person, person number three, shall gather the cow's ashes, place them outside the camp in a clean place. And it shall be as a keepsake for the congregation of the children of Israel for sprinkling water used for cleansing. Which means, essentially, you're probably going to take, I would imagine, you take the ashes, put them in a jar, a jug, a box, a container, Tupperware, I don't know. You put them somewhere as a keepsake, but not as a souvenir. Like, oh, hey, like, I visited the ancient temple and I got like a little, uh, you know, a little vial of red heifer ashes Whereas a necklace. That's not, that's not what's going on here. This is kept as a keepsake for sprinkling water used for cleansing. In other words, you're going to keep it. And then whenever you need it, you'll mix this, the ashes together with the water. In other words, I should, let me just say this even more clearly, but just from a different angle, you don't need to do a new red heifer every time somebody becomes impure. You have a lot of ashes. Are you with me on this? You have a lot of ashes. And whenever you need it, you pull from there and you, it's like, I, Ugh, this is going to sound so crude. Do you buy a new a new container of 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 uh, salt every time you make a chalent? Of course not. I, that's I, sorry for the mixing food in, in this situation. I'm just saying that you don't you use you, you have a container and you use however much you use. The same thing over here. You have red heifer ashes. 
And every time you need to do a red heifer, you, you pull from, from the batch until it's out, and then you got to do another one. According to Rambam, which is really halacha, Judaism, right? According to our tradition, there were historically, there were nine red heifers made throughout history, from the times of Moses through the time of the Second Temple era. Whenever they were doing, uh, they've only done nine, only nine red heifers. And Rambam says, and the tenth will be done when Mashiach comes. Um, may the redemption come speedily. Amen. So may it be his will. It's funny because the Rebbe asked the question, why is Rambam, Maimonides, giving a blessing for Mashiach when he mentions uh, the red heifer? Again, he says nine red heifer, and there's laws of paradum, laws of the red heifer. He says nine were done historically. The tenth will happen when Mashiach comes. May he come speedily in our days. May it be as well. Amen. Why the blessing? It's a book, book of halacha, not a book of, uh, of, uh, of formalities or greetings or blessings. So the Rebbe says that's a, that, that itself is a halacha. What's the halacha that Rabbi was teaching us? Anytime you talk about Mashiach, you should say, it should come soon. Amen. Ken Yeratzim. May be God's will. Right? Every time you talk about Mashiach, whatever, you give a blessing that it should come. That's what, that's what Rabbi does. Anyway, back to our script. Script, i.e. the Torah. Back to the Torah portion. Um, now, the one who gathers the cow's ashes, that's the third person. There's a slaughter, the burner, and the gatherer. The one who gathers the cow's ashes shall wash his clothes, and he shall be unclean until evening. And as he also has to go to mikvah. It shall be an everlasting statue for the children of Israel and for the proselyte who resides in their midst. Okay, the first 10 verses tell us how the ashes of the red heifer are procured. You take a perfectly red, unblemished heifer, cow, you slaughter it, sprinkle the blood, burn it along with a few other items, gather the ashes, and put them away. Now we got the ashes. Clearly, there's sprinkling water involved, so clearly the ashes will be mixed with water. We haven't said that yet. So far, we're up to the where you get the ashes from stage. Three individuals are involved. The slaughter, the burner, and the gather of the ashes. All three become ritually impure on a much lower level of impurity. They need a mikvah. Let's continue. Now the Torah tells us why we need this in the first place. Verse 11. Anyone touching the corpse of a human soul, that means a human being, shall become unclean for seven days. So if someone comes in contact with death, human death, human, a, de- a dead human body, they are impure, they are ritually unclean for seven days. Again, touching a dead body, being in the same room as somebody who passes away, being in a hospital under the same roof as someone who died, um, stepping over a grave and a cemetery, etc. All of these would render, all of these are considered touching a corpse, a human corpse, and renders one unclean for seven days. What do you do? On the third and seventh days, after contact, so remember, seven days total, but on day three and day seven, he shall cleanse himself with it so that he can become clean. In other words, cleanse himself with it. What is it? The red heifer, the the um, the ashes of the red heifer mixed with water, and that's sprinkled and applied to this individual on day three and day seven. 
So again, if you're wondering, somebody comes in contact with death and you need a red heifer, when is it done? Day three, day seven. But if he, but if he, but if he does not sprinkle himself with it on the third and seventh days, he shall not become clean. By the way, that's where we're at. That's where we're at. All of us, everyone here has come in contact at some point, whether knowingly or unknowingly, with a dead body. All of us, without exception. And thus, we are impure. And you know what? We didn't have the red heifer day three and day seven because we don't have red heifers. We don't have a temple. Therefore, we are still impure. That's it. But it's not about us. Let's just keep, let's get back inside. Although it is about us, but it's, let's go back inside. Whoever touches the corpse of a human soul which dies and he does not cleanse himself, he has defiled the mishkan of the Lord. So what are the implications of not cleansing? So he says, nah, I'm not going to do it. So I'll be unclean. Big deal. Torah says, it is a big deal. Because if you go to the mishkan, if you go to the tabernacle, if you go to the sanctuary, if you go to the temple, without having purified yourself, then you've defiled the Mishkan of the Lord. It doesn't mean that you defile the Mishkan of the Lord if you're just sitting at home. It means if you go to the Mishkan, you've defiled the Mishkan if you're in a state of impurity. And that soul, that's a, it's a big deal, shall be cut off from Israel. Nechrusa, kares. It's a serious spiritual punishment. That's a spiritual punishment from God. Somebody who goes to the temple in a state of ritual impurity, gevald. That soul shall be cut off. Again, again. Understand this, according to many halachic opinions, going, to the te- going on the Temple Mount today would have that same status. For the sprinkling water was not sprinkled on him, so he remains unclean, and his uncleanness remains upon him. So don't go to the Mishkan. Now, the Torah clarifies how one becomes impure. We talked about touching the corpse. Is there any other way? I mentioned a few, being in the same room. What if I didn't touch the dead body? This is the law. Verse 14. If a man dies in a tent. Now, back then they had tents. They didn't have... They didn't have homes the way we have... I mean, they did, but not in the desert. So if a man dies in a tent, anyone entering the tent and anything in the tent shall be unclean for seven days. You hear that? It's not just touching a dead body. Verse 13. Verse 14 tells us, even if you're in the same room as the dead body or under the same roof as the dead body. That's why I keep on mentioning hospitals. The understanding is that at any given time in a hospital, there is a dead body. If you are in a a hospital, you are presumed to be ritually impure on this level. Any open vessel which has no seal fastened around it becomes unclean. Again, in that tent, under that roof, where the dead body is, if you have a jar that's open with raspberry preserves, strawberry preserves. I don't know why strawberry preserves. It's open vessel. The context, the contents become now unclean, ritually impure. There you go. Any open vessel which has no seal around it becomes unclean. Anyone who touches one slain by the sword or a corpse or a human bone or a grave in the open field, he shall be unclean for seven days. We're giving scenarios when, under which circumstances, the person is rendered impure for seven days. Again, under the same roof, touching the dead body, whether they were killed by sword or they just died, or a human bone or a grave. Touching a grave. Walking in a cemetery. Walking in a cemetery. He shall become unclean for seven days. 
They shall take for that unclean person. Oh, now we finally put all the pieces together. I mean, I've already done it, but verse 17. They shall take for that unclean person, the one who came in contact with death, from the ashes of the burnt purification offering. That was the ashes of the red heifer. And it shall be placed in a vessel filled with spring water. All right, I'm going to clap for this. We finally got all the, took 17 verses. We now have the whole picture. So if I were to reorganize this, I would say like this. I would start off with the scenario. Someone touches a dead body or touches a piece of a dead body or touches a grave or walks over a grave or is in the same home or same building as a dead body. That person becomes unclean. The strictest level of impurity for seven days. On day three and seven, there's a ritual that needs to happen. What's the ritual? The sprinkling of the ashes of the red heifer. How do you get that? You start off with a red heifer. Perfectly red cow, unblemished, perfectly red. You slaughter it outside the camp. You sprinkle the blood toward the tent of meeting. You then take the animal. You burn it, reduce it to ashes. Sorry. When you burn it, you mix crimson hyssop. You mix a few things in there, part of the mixture. You burn everything. You gather the ashes, put it away. When somebody becomes impure, you pull it out. You put it in a vessel with clean, pure spring water, called, by the way, Mayim Chaim. In the original, I'll show it to you inside when we, I'll pull back the text in a second. Mayim means water. Chaim means alive. Living water. What does it mean, living water? Water that comes from a, an original source. An original source. Not rainwater. An original spring. Some Mayim Chaim means living water. Waters that are moving. Not a river. The source. The source. Ma'im Chai means it's alive, it's producing more water. Not the runoff from a mountain, a river, right, situation. Um, but a, like a, a natural spring. So you need natural spring water. It sounds like an ad for like, you know, quenching your thirst. Natural spring water in a vessel. The ashes go on top of it. I mean, we'll see this in Rashi. You mix it together and you sprinkle it on the person day three and day seven. And that is the purification Right. Now, there's still more stuff involved, but that's what we got so far. All right. And I want to show, I'm going to share. Hey, Mark. Great to see you. Hi. Welcome, welcome. So, again, Vinasan Alav Mayim Chaim El Kelly. You place the ashes upon Mayim Chaim, living waters, El Kelly, in a vessel. So, in a vessel filled with spring water. So, you have a vessel. You have spring water in it. And on top of it, you put the ashes of the red heifer, and then you sprinkle it on the person day three and day seven. What's uh, that word about Kelly? Yeah, Mayim Chaim, spring water, El Kelly. Kelly is like a Kelly, like a, a vessel. Kelly means a vessel. Oh, okay. Um, okay. I had, so one of my teachers, one of my strong influences, if you, you know, back in the day, they used to be called corny jokes. Today we call them dad jokes. I mean, it's basically the same thing. Um, Mayim. Oh, why did the hipster burn his? Why did the hipster burn himself on coffee? Because he drank it before it was cool. Like that's a that's a dad joke, right? You drank it before it was cool. Yeah, that's like that's that's bad. It's bad, but it's good. It's it's bad. It's I love it. Anyway, so I had a very strong influence in Pittsburgh growing up. There was a rabbi whose name was Rabbi Ruddle. 
and he was the generator of Rabbi Ruddle jokes. Rabbi Ruddle had the best corniest jokes ever, but he used a lot of Bible. Like the famous one, like, why didn't Noah play cards? Because he was standing on the deck. You know, like, that's, that's, yeah, that's the classic. Also, he didn't want to play with a cheetah. Like, these are classic Rabbi Ruddle jokes I remember from my, from my, uh, from my youth. I'll share another one. He says, once we were, he grew up in Montreal. We were in Montreal walking to, to yeshiva, to school, and uh, some kids were yelling angry things about Jews, and they threw a, a bottle of Coke at us. He says, thank God it didn't hurt. It was a soft drink. I mean, that was his, like, soft drink. Get it? Oh. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, the, it, he, he was into, into those sort of things. I remember he, he, asked, he asked me, he used to go around to everybody, he asked me, what's the first triple play in history? You know, like in baseball, you can do a triple play? So he said right here, this verse. Mayim Chaim al-Kelly. Mayim to Chaim to Kelly. Triple play. Anyway, that, I don't even know if I get it as much as it's, I mean, it's three words. Mayim Chaim al-Kelly. Mayim to Chaim to Kelly. Triple play. Anyway, that was, uh, I feel like we'll do a tribute to him. He actually passed away at a young age um, several years ago. His memory be for a blessing. Certainly taught us a lot and really brought a lot of joy to everybody. Um, okay, let's continue with reading number two. Okay, we're going to go back to some Rashi's in a little bit, but let's continue to see what's going on over here. A ritually clean person. Now, this is person number four. If you're, if you're, if you're playing at home, right, you know that this is already person number four. One person to slaughter the animal, second to burn the animal, the third to gather the ashes, well, now we have a fourth person. A ritually clean person shall take the hyssop and dip it into the water. Okay, wait, wait. So remember, we have the we have a okay cup, not this, filled with spring water, natural water. Inside is sprinkled the ash of the red heifer. Give it a twirl. Okay, then you take some hyssop. Hyssop is like, I don't know, like a, um, what's hyssop? Hyssop is like a low-growing shrub thing, right? I think I'm right. Take hyssop, you dip it into the water mixture, and then you sprinkle it. Your hyssop is your application situation. That's your applier. I don't know if that's the right word. That's your applicator. The hyssop, you dip it into the water, and you sprinkle it on the tent. Uh, That's the tent that the person passed away in. The, the house, the home, on all the vessels and on the people who were in it and on anyone who touched the bone, the slain person, the corpse, or the grave. Make sense? You're basically dipping it into this mixture and sprinkling it. A ritually, the, sorry, the ritually clean person. In other words, a new person, not the slaughterer and not the burner and not the gatherer, a ritually clean person, shall sprinkle on the unclean person on the third day and on the seventh day. We said that before, day three and day seven. And he shall cleanse him on the seventh day. In other words, that's when the culmination happens on day seven. And he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water, and he shall become ritually clean in the evening. My understanding is that that's referring to the person who became impure, not the sprinkler. But I could be wrong. We'll look at Rashi. If a person becomes unclean, 
and does not cleanse himself, as we said before, the Torah doubles down. That soul shall be cut off from the congregation. For he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. Again, if, you, if the person goes to the sanctuary they, in a state of uncleanliness, they've now defiled the sanctuary. If you're sitting at home, it's okay. Today there is no sanctuary, so more or less we're okay. The sprinkling waters were not sprinkled upon him. He is unclean. Back then, don't remain unclean. Go through the process. This shall be for them as a perpetual statute. Look at that. Chukat olam, perpetual statute. And the one who sprinkles the sprinkling waters shall wash his clothes. And one who touches the sprinkling waters shall be unclean until evening. Whatever the unclean one touches shall become unclean. And anyone touching him shall be unclean until evening. So that's another interesting law. If the person, someone who, say, Reuven comes in contact with a corpse, and then someone touches him, they become impure, but not on the same level. Because that would also, as Sarah mentioned before, that would also almost be an unending loop. Like, imagine if you had a trace, like contact tracing all the people that you touched. I mean, gosh, that would be crazy. All the things that you touch. No, so it means the people that came in contact, they just have to go to mikvah, but they're not on the level of the initial contact with, with a dead body. So what's, what's important to remember in halacha is that there are, and maybe I should have started with this, there's different levels of ritual impurity. The highest level, when I say highest, the most severe level is direct contact with a dead body, a grave, a bone, a piece of a body, human death. Direct or even, you know, a tent being under the same roof as a dead human body renders one the most severe level of impurity. You need the red heifer, seven days, etc. Otherwise, go to mikvah and call it a day. All right, now let's go back and see. Yes. Two questions. Yeah. One, one simple, maybe the other not so simple. Uh, it says uh, this shall be. Where is that? This shall be for them an eternal statue. Yes. Doesn't doesn't say, but only if the temple standing. Excellent, excellent question. Good, good. Okay, you, you had another question. Yeah, that was the first one. The second one is, I remember being taught, I believe by you. That um, question came up that if someone, uh, for example, has a catheter or something like that, uh, or if they uh, have a wound that they can't touch the Torah, they would, if, of course, they would make it, they would file it. But, the, but then the counter argument I heard was the Torah itself cannot be made unholy. That's a really good question. I don't know, I, I don't know that that was me. Because it's, it's an unfamiliar topic. I would have to look that up. It's an interesting question. But yeah, the Torah itself presumably cannot become defiled. Yeah. So in other words, if that's the case, wouldn't the same hold for the tabernacle? That's what that's, that's what that's like. Oh, I see, I see, I see. Let's go back to that verse. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. How do you defile the sanctuary? It's a good question. Right. Yeah, good question. I don't, yeah, I, I would read that a little bit, little bit more loosely. I don't know if you're defiling the tabernacle. I think you're you're going in there in a defiled state, and that's not cool. That's not respectful. But yeah, I don't I don't know that it actually defiles the sanctuary. You know what's interesting? You know, along those lines, I was listening to a um, to a shir to a class, very very interesting and elaborate conversation about Moses hitting the rock. Not for right now. I mean, that's in this week's Torah portion, but that's later. 
Um, interesting conversation about mikvah and whatever. But one thing that I thought was interesting, you know, somebody who's impure goes into a mikvah and they walk out pure. Why? Why doesn't their impurity render the entire mikvah impure? Are you with me on that? You have a pure body of water. When I say pure, I mean in like a ritually clean. And then someone impure goes in. Oh, great. You messed up the mikvah. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Yanko, what are you doing, buddy? No, that's not how it works. Something impure goes into mikvah. The mikvah remains pure. You with me on this? The mikvah always remains pure, which is why it in turn purifies the one that goes into it. So I would think in a similar way, I would say the mishkan is no less than a mikvah in that it doesn't become impure. Yet, I don't think that it purifies the one magically. It would have to actually go to a mikvah. So I don't know. I mean, it's a good question. Does it become, how does it become pure? But what's its process? You got to sprinkle waters on it. It's not, it's not, we don't see that anywhere. I would understand it a little bit more, a little, a bit less literally and more um, conceptually or Does spiritually. Does it have to be a certain amount of rainwater? Yes. Yes. So what if there isn't? Yeah, then, then you defile it. But assuming that, yeah, then, then that messes it up. But assuming it's, a, it's kosher, and once you reach that threshold of kosher mikvah, at that point, it is impervious to the defilement. On the contrary, it generates purifying vibes, right? It's like whoosh, pumping out the vibes. Um, again, that's assuming that the waters were, that the mikvah was, was, is a kosher mikvah, which is why, let me cut to the chase. I listened to this really interesting shir that says that's what, what there's a very unique perspective of the Ragachav or Gon, the great uh, um, genius of the last century, passed away in 1936, who expl- he explains what, when Moses hit the rock, why it was such a big deal. Because Moses hitting the rock was producing the water. Remember, that water wasn't just like a little trickle. That water was used for everything, including mikvahs. You with me on this? That water was like, it was a massive rock, and it flowed, and that pooled up, and that became mikvah. When he took the stick to hit it, he created the mikvah using something that was impure because the, the, the staff was Aaron's staff, which was made of wood, which is, and it has like a little bit of a curvature to it, which is, uh, which is, which was in that case, something that was susceptible to ritual impurity, which makes the mikvah not kosher. So that's why God calls it the waters of strife, because now Moses, you produced the mikvah, you took the wrong stick. God told them to use his stick. There were two sticks, two staffs. Moses' staff was made out of sapphire. Aaron's was made out of wood. He took the wood one, which was susceptible to ritual. Sapphire is not susceptible to ritual impurity. Wood was. Basically, God says, you took the wrong stick when you hit. And, and now the mikvah is not a kosher mikvah. And now you're going to cause strife. Because mikvah, again, mikvah is needed for also for, for intimacy, for family purposes. Now, husbands and wives, you're messing up the entire, uh, you know, until we, we get new clean mikvah going on here. So now it's not a kosher mikvah. So it was in a very unique uh, perspective on what happened with the hitting of the rock, why it was such a big deal, apparently had to do something, according to one opinion, Ragachavar, has to do something with the mikvah. Anyway, that's an aside. Let's jump back in. Let's let's cover some Rashis. Um, and let's, I don't know. That we, uh, yeah, we can do these Rashis. We got this. We got this. All right. This is the statute of the Torah Rashi. I love this. Because Satan and the nations of the world taunt Israel, saying, what is this commandment and what purpose does it have? And honestly, I don't know, S- S- Satan and the nations, Satan and the nations. I think any reasonable person would say, are you kidding me? 
Someone touches a dead body and they need, you got to burn a red heifer and mix it with the, the ashes and the water. Like, what, what are you talking about? In other words, makes no sense. Therefore, the Torah uses the term statute, chok, chukah. I have decreed it, God says. You have no right to challenge it. In other words, it's not something intellectual. It's something purely willful from God. God wills this mitzvah into existence. God decided, God wants that this should be impurity. This should be purity. This is the way to get there. And it's all a chok, chukah. It's all a divine statute or decree. You have no right to challenge it, which means don't bother trying to figure it out. It's not a rational argument. Hence, the meaning of the word chukat, Torah statute means super rational. Super rational. For example, some I give you lahavdal, right? Just to give you a simple human example. Somebody walks into an ice cream shop and says, uh, you know, give me a, a, a vanilla ice cream. Person next to him says, vanilla? Yeah. Why do you like vanilla? Why? I don't know. Why not chocolate? I don't know. I like vanilla. I don't have a... I, just, I like it. That's, 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 that's who I am. I just like vanilla. God wants this. God likes this. And it's not a, it's not a logical thing. It's just... It's, it's, it it, it kind of is what it is. Hence the name Chok. Now, we know that this is not the only example of Chok. There are many examples of Chok. Kosher. Why not meat and milk? Why not mix meat and milk? Chok. Why not wear wool and linen together? Chok. We don't know. It's God's decree. But Zohukana Torah, this one is so elaborate. This one is, you take, it's so many pieces to this one. You're like, you take the red heifer. Why red? Then you have to, unblemished. Why unblemished? Never worked before. Why? Burn it. Why? Take the ashes, mix it with spring water in a vessel. It's a spring, third date, seventh date. So many, so elaborate. And all of it is, again, beyond our rationale. It's not logical. It's super, super, super irrational or super rational. Um, okay, perfect. Right, it shall be perfect in redness. Two black hairs already disqualified. If there's two black, one black hair, you get away with it. Two black hairs, you're out. It's kind of like white hairs, right? White hairs. You get one white hair, you can pretend like you don't have white hair. Suddenly, you get more than one. All right, that's it. Going gray. That's it. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> Talking for a friend. Okay, next, Elazar. The mitzvah was performed by the deputy to the Kohen Gadol, not the Kohen Gadol himself. Outside the camp, it's burned. Outside all three camps, slaughter in his presence. A non-Kohen slaughters it while Elazar watches. Okay. Elazar uh, uh, takes the blood and sprinkles it toward the front of the tent of meeting. So Rashi says, in later generations, when this rite will be performed outside the temple in Jerusalem, he is to stand to the east of Jerusalem and direct his gaze toward the entrance to the temple while sprinkling the blood. So again, just to be very clear, the blood is sprinkled outside, but you do it toward the direction of the Mishkan of the temple. Just to be very clear. You sprinkle it to the general vicinity of where the temple or the Mishkan was. They don't take the blood, run into the temple and do it. They're still outside the whole temple area. Um, okay. The Kohen should go to Mikvah, then he may enter the camp, the camp of the Divine Presence, because no ritually unclean person is banished from two camps, except one who's experienced a flow, one who experienced a similar emission, or one afflicted with Sarat. Hence, he's admitted to the one camp from which he was banished. Alright, fine. So he was able to go home, he just couldn't go to the temple, the Kohen, until he went to Mikvah. Until evening, he sh 
shall be unclean until evening, and then he may enter the camp. Okay, so just Rashi says, transpose the verse, read it backward, back, back to front. Next, yes. It says a lot, Elazar the Kohen is to do this. And in my notes here, it says, actually, Rashi says its commandment is to be carried out by the deputy to the Kohen Gadol. Yes. What's the reason for that? In case the Kohen Gadol gets uh, impure, the, the deputy could take care of him? Maybe. Could be. Maybe we don't. I don't. It's a good question. Why not the Kohen Gadol himself? I don't know. There might be a, I'm sure there's a practical reason and I'm sure there's a mystical reason. Um, I don't know. You know what, Mark? Homework is to give, give us the answer tomorrow. <laughs> you ask the questions. I'll ask the questions. Mark, why the deputy? Anyway, see if you can, yeah, if you see anything, let us know. And I'll do the same. Now, he takes the ashes and plays them outside the camp. Rashi clarifies. He divided the ashes into three parts. One was put on the Mount of Olives. This is obviously when they were in Israel. This is not in the desert, right? One was put on the Mount of Olives, Harazesim. Um, one was divided among all the watches. That means the uh, the, the priestly um, shifts, and one and and one who put on the rampart surrounding. And one was put on the rampart surrounding the temple area, or the rampart. Something like that. The one, something I can't remember, the stars being a bit. The one given to the watches was outside the courtyard, allowing access to it for the inhabitants of outlying cities. Whoever needed to purify himself. They had easy access. If somebody needed to purify himself that was outside of Jerusalem, boom. They had they had one, they had some ready to go. The one on the Mount of Olives was used for the Kohanim Gedolim. Oh, Mark, look at you. The high priest to sanctify themselves from it for use with other red cows. The one put on the rampart was kept as a keepsake by the ritual, by scriptural ruling. As it says, it shall be as a keepsake for the congregation of Israel. So some was preserved, some was for posterity, and two parts were used. One inside the temple for the high priest, and the other one was used for people living in outlying cities. Next, for sprinkling water, water used for sprinkling, as in they cast a stone at me to cast down, casting, i.e. throwing, tossing, sprinkling. Purification, cleansing. Aha, that's a simple meaning. But a deeper meaning uh, is that scripture calls a chatos, which literally means sin offering, to tell us that it is like holy objects and using it for personal benefit is forbidden. You cannot use. I don't know why anyone would use the red heifer ashes for personal benefit. I don't even know what that means, but you cannot do it for personal benefit. You can't mix it in. red That's not a thing. Again, I don't know who would do it, but don't do it. Shall cleanse himself with these ashes. Okay, corpse of a human soul. Which type of corpse? Human soul. To exclude an animal. That, it, that, it's, unclean, uh, that it's uncleanness does not require sprinkling. Now this is very important. If someone comes in contact with a dead animal, it happens all the time. People's pets pass away. It happens. Right? It happens. People's pet. People have a dog. People have a cat. People have a whatever. I don't know. A bunny. A goldfish. I don't know. Whatever. If, if, a pet, if an animal dies, you come in contact with a dead animal, you become impure, but not this level. You don't need a red heifer. Red heifer is only for human corpse. Okay. Um, 
Oh, of a human soul also can mean, refers to a quart of a log of blood necessary for maintaining life. In other words, what is the minimum amount of blood that one has to come in contact with to become uh, uh, impure on this level? It's the amount that could sustain human life, a quart of a log. I don't know exactly how many liters of blood that is um, in modern uh, measurements, but it's a certain amount of blood. That's the minimum amount of blood to sustain life. That is the amount of blood that one has to come in contact with to become virtually impure. Now he has defiled the Mishkan of the Lord. If he enters the courtyard even after ritual immersion, without having been sprinkled on both third and seventh days, he is defiling the Mishkan. Again, did it actually get defiled or did he do the wrong? I would go the latter, but either way. His uncleanness remains, although he richly immersed himself. So if you go to mikvah, but don't do the sprinkling of the red heifer, it doesn't work. Mikvah is one thing, but you need to sprinkle on day three and day seven. Okay, anyone entering the tent while the corpse is inside, any open vessel. Scripture refers to an earthenware vessel whose exterior does not accept contamination, only its interior. Thus, if the seal around the top is not securely fastened, it becomes contaminated because it goes inside. But if there is a securely fastened seal, it remains clean. If you have a, it's a bit different than what I said before. I use the example of uh, strawberry preserves. Rashi says, what are you talking about strawberry preserves? Let me give you a better example. Let's say this was an earthenware vessel and it's sealed and it's inside the tent where there's a dead body, God forbid, it remains pure. If it's open, it becomes impure because the contamination happens on the inside. All right, open field. Rashi says, the sages expanded this phrase to include the top and side of a coffin. They also render one impure on that level. But the simple meaning is that in an open field where there is no tent, a corpse contaminates through contact, which means that again, if you're if the dead body and you are in the same house, that's a problem. If uh, the dead body is in an open field and you're in the open field and you're not touching it, you do not become impure. So it requires touching. And what if you stand on top of the grave? Yeah, that's a problem. I mean, in general, don't stand on top of graves. But also in this case, standing on top would render one likely impure through that direct contact. Next. Why would the coffin be open? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have a good answer to that. I think he's saying, not that it should be open, but if it was open. In other words, like, Uh if. If for whatever reason it was open and, and one came in contact with that, that would render one impure. Basically, basically, anyone who's ever been to a funeral, like pretty much that kind of proximity, is probably presumed to be this level of impurity. Again, we don't have the the purification. Wash your hands when you leave. Yeah, we do something, but like it's not uh, not exactly this. Okay, in other words, don't go to the temple after that, and he shall cleanse him. Uh, this consummates his cleansing. Yeah, this is going to mikvah. This is the person who became impure. He goes, he gets it. The one who became impure, touching a dead body or coming in contact with human death, sprinkle, gets sprinkled on day three and day seven, and then he goes to mikvah. And that consummates his cleansing. Then he's done. Um, Yeah, if sanctuary stated here, now here the, the verse 20 seems like a repetition of a previous verse, verse 13. It says if somebody is impure, coming contact with death and does not do this ritual, then, oh, it's a problem. He's defiled. So in verse 13, it says he defiled the Mishkan of the Lord. Here it says sanctuary, Mishkan and then Mikdash. So Rashi asked the question, why, does it, why do we have two verses that say essentially the same thing? But one says Mishkan and one says Mikdash. Mishkan means Mishkan, tabernacle. Mikdash means sanctuary. What's the, why the difference? 
Rashi asks, if sanctuary stated, why, why need it say Mishkan? Why do we need both? The answer is that if it would say Mishkan, I would say that the person is punished with the excision only if he enters the Mishkan in a state of uncleanness because the Mishkan was anointed with the anointing oil. But if he enters the temple in a state of uncleanness, he would not be punished since the temple was not anointed with the anointing oil. You might think that it's only the Mishkan that has a more severe protocol, a more uh, strict protocol than the, than the temple itself. And if it would say sanctuary, denoting the temple in Jerusalem, I would say that only for entering the temple in a state of uncleanness would he be punished by excision because its sanctity is permanent. Uh, but for entering the Mishkan in a state of uncleanness, he would not be punished because its sanctity was temporary because it was moving around all the time. Therefore, it was necessary to mention both as stated in the Talmud. So basically, the Talmud explains why, 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 why we need both mentions. If it would just say Mishkan, I would think only the Mishkan, because it's anointed with oil from Moses. But the Mikdash, the temple in Jerusalem, was never anointed with the anointing oil by Moses. So therefore, you can go in even having come in contact with death. And if we do the other way around, if it only said Mikdash, which means the temple in Jerusalem, I might think, yeah, that because it's permanent. But the Mishkan that was traveling around, eh, maybe you can go in there willy-nilly, even in a state of uncleanness. Therefore, the Torah says both Mishkan and Mikdash. If you're in a state of ritual impurity, come in contact with human death, do not go to the tabernacle or the temple in Jerusalem later on. Do not go to either or both. All right, next. The one who sprinkles the sprinkling waters, Rashi clarifies. Our rabbi said that the one who sprinkles, the actual sprinkler, the applier of the red heifer uh, ash mixture is actually ritually clean. But this teaches us that the one who carries the purifying waters becomes defiled with the stringent uncleanness. For even the clothes he is wearing are contaminated, unlike the one who merely touches the sprinkling waters. Scripture used the expression Mazda, the one who sprinkles, to teach us that the waters do not contaminate until there is an amount of water adequate for sprinkling. This is so important, especially the spiritual lesson that I want to draw, which we're, we're getting, we're coming very close to that. I'm, I'm going to explain this. Basically, we discussed already a number of parties involved in this process. To prepare the ashes, you need the, the slaughter, the sprinkler, the burner, and the gather of the ashes. And then you need someone else, those four, four roles. I don't think I did four before, but the slaughter of the animal, the sprinkler of the blood, the burner of the one who burns the cow and the one who gathers the ashes, four roles with the animal. Then you have someone who gathers, the, takes the ashes, mixes it with water and creates the mixture. Then you have someone who carries the mixture to the Kohen who applies the mixture. So you have the, the one who mixes the mixture, carries it, and applies it. Rash says the third party, the applier, never becomes impure. The one who actually does the sprinkling with the hyssop, that person never becomes impure, does not need to go to the mikvah. If you're doing the applying, you do not need to go to the mikvah. Everyone else involved does, but the one actually applying does not. I'm going to explain why on a deeper level shortly. Whatever the unclean one touches, this unclean one who is defiled by a corpse touches becomes unclean. Anyone touching him, the one defiled by a corpse, also shall be unclean until evening. From here we derive that a corpse is the supreme source of contamination, whereas one touching it is a primary source of contamination who can in turn defile another person through contact. So again, you have the aviyavaistuma and the avatuma. You have the ground zero is the corpse. And then the first person who, not the first, but the person who touches the corpse is now a primary source of contamination to then to then defile others, but they don't become defiled on the same level as him. This is his explanation according to its literal meaning and the laws associated with it. 
Then Rashi gets into a whole Agadic interpretation, which we're not going to get to today. Maybe we'll get to tomorrow. So we're going to pause here, and then I'm going to share with you a deeper insight, and then we're going to close out for today. And tomorrow we're going to pick it up maybe with the Agada, which means like the homiletical teaching here, and then we'll continue num- number chapter 20 as we get to the passing of Miriam and the water and the hitting the rock and all that good stuff. All that is tomorrow. But first, an insight. Number one, what we've seen today is that when you're in the process of helping someone, you might become impure. As the Rebbe explains, in the context of helping someone else out, you might be taking away resources from yourself. If someone needs money, you're giving up your money, you have less money. If someone needs your time, you're giving up your time, you have less time. If someone needs your your emotional presence, you're giving them from your heart and you're taking away from yourself. In the language of halacha, in the language of the Torah, it means that you are becoming impure. It meaning you're taking a hit by helping someone else out. The one who slaughters the red, the, the red heifer, the one who sprinkles the blood, burns it and creates the ashes, the one who gathers the ashes, mixes the mixture, carries the mixture, all the steps of preparing the red heifer mixture for someone else, it's not for themselves, it's for someone else who needs it. It's a good deed. You're helping someone else out. But at the end of the day, it takes something from you. At the end of the day, you get hit. You take a hit. You were helping someone, but it costs you something. Except for one person. The person who does the actual applying. The person who actually hands-on deals with the person in need never loses anything. Two lessons that the Rebbe draws from this. Lesson number one. Always be prepared to become defiled to help someone else out. Ah, you might say, I don't want to become defiled. These are Kohanim that we're talking about. Well, a Kohen should become defiled for someone else who touched a dead body? Not my problem. I'm a Kohen. No, you have to. Become defiled to help someone else out. So that's lesson number one. Be ready to, to, to sacrifice something to help someone else. Don't only help when it's easy. Don't only help when there's no skin in the game. Be prepared to put something on the line, your own sanctity, in order to help someone else in need. That's lesson number one. And lesson number two, if you're actually hands-on dealing with the person to help them, it will never cost you a penny. If you're actually delivering the sprinkling, if you're the one interfacing to all the people preparing the mixture behind the scenes, they become defiled. But the one actually delivering... The one, the, 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 the Kohen who delivers, who applies the actual red heifer mixture to the individual who is impure, never becomes contaminated, even to go to mikvah, they don't have to, as Rashi pointed out. So only the one carrying the waters becomes impure, but not the one doing the actual application. Why? Because God sends a blessing to all those actively involved in helping others, actively, not behind the scenes, the ones actually doing the work that they don't even get a spiritual hit. So again, two messages. Number one, be ready to give of yourself to help. And number two, if you're actually helping, you won't even need, you won't even need to give up anything. You will get much more than you give. You will not take a loss. So again, lesson one, be prepared to take a loss for someone else. That's the way life is. We give to others. Number two, if you're actually giving, if you're in that, if you're in the last mile, so to speak, the one interfacing with that other person, then what you're giving is actually not taking away from you at all. The money that you give, it's going to come back. The time that you give is going to come back. 
the emotional energy that you give is going to come back. It's all going to come back. And if you're wondering, how does time come back? You ready? You ready? We move the clocks. I'm kidding. How does time come back? It comes back because what would otherwise take 10 hours to do, you'll get done in five hours. Why? Because God will bless the efforts. God will give you a bracha that all the stuff that you need to get done will happen. Everything will fall into place. You ever have that? You have like a, a thing that you think, how am I going to get this done? And all the pieces fall, to, fall in place and it gets done quickly. Sometimes you think it's going to be a quick job and it takes days or years. Right? I don't know, years. Maybe that's over-exaggerated. It takes, it takes a while. The answer is God's blessing. God's blessing dictates whether things will go fast or slow. God can help give us time, take away time. Right? This is the way things work on a spiritual level. So moral of the story, bottom, bottom line. The bottom line is this. Let's be prepared to help the other. Those in need physically, spiritually. As the Rebbe often said, loving your fellow as yourself doesn't mean to give them what you need. It means to give them what they need. So like I once saw a talk where the Rebbe says, you know, if somebody needs food and... Um, and you're into water, offering them water is not going to help. Right? Like, so let's say you're, you're thirsty and you're like, oh, this person needs, they probably need water also. Nope, they have water. They need, they need food. Or the Rebbe said also, like if somebody needs physical help, like money or food or clothing, like physical help, and you're like, yeah, but I can give you spiritual help. I mean, it's great, but that's not, it's not helping them with what they need right now. I mean, that's also, they might also need that, in which case, fine. But if they, if they don't need that, if they need the physical stuff, and you're like, yeah, but I can give you spiritual stuff, I mean, I guess you can only give what you can give, but that doesn't actually satisfy the need. So it's important that we, we, that, we, that we be there for each other in the way that they need. So it means paying attention to what they need, not thinking, what, not projecting what we think they need. So it's really paying attention and listening to what they need, and then being there for them um, unconditionally, knowing that it's worth Taking a hit, skin in the game to help the other. And also knowing that if I'm actually helping, I will not even take a hit. I'm not, it's not even going to cost me a penny. All right. Thank you for joining me today for DPP. Hope this made sense. Um, as we kind of uh, jump into the red heifer conversation to be continued tomorrow a little bit. And then we're going to talk about the incident, May Mariva, the waters of strife. Okay. Pleasure. Pleasure, Sarah. All right. Good to see you, Sarah and Ray and Sandrine and Mark. Have a wonderful day. Don't forget, tomorrow night, pleasure. Tomorrow night is Torah studies. The class is phenomenal. The class is, uh, stay tuned for more information as it gets closer. I actually I actually prepared the class yesterday on the plane. And I'm trying to remember what the class was. Oh my gosh. I, I had it, like I was thinking about it earlier today. And then, you know, these things, they just, uh, information just pops out of your brain. At the most inopportune times. Here we go. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We're going to talk about the water and the clouds, the, the Be'erish of Miriam, the well of Miriam, and the, um, and the clouds of glory. And on behalf, uh, that came in the merit of Aaron. So clouds and water. Thanks. Tomorrow. All right, tomorrow night. We'll see you tomorrow. Same bad time, same bad channel. Take care. Yom Tov. Bye. Bye. We'll see you. Feel good, Sandrine. Take care, everybody. Thanks. Pleasure. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at intownjewishacademy.org 
and on YouTube at InTown Jewish Academy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day.